the South is always talked about like it is 50 years behind. People have that completely backwards. I think the South is not 50 years behind. I think the South is 50 years ahead. And I think that that is a warning that people need to think about and listen to. If you leave these things as a them problem and not an us problem, they eventually always become an us problem. Hey y'all, I'm Tommy Tomlinson. And from WFAE in Charlotte, this is Southbound. Conversations with people from all walks of life about how the South shapes who they are and what they do. Kendrin Motes runs a communication strategy company in New York City, but he tries to run it in the spirit of the mom and pop stores he saw growing up in small town Alabama. Motes' firm, KMSG, helps nonprofits and small businesses become more socially responsible, and he helps funnel some of their donations and attention to places back in the South that can use the help. The Politics NY website recently named Motes a 2024 power player in corporate social responsibility. He talked to me about what that means, how he got into that field, and why he wishes he'd never tried to get rid of his Southern accent. Here's our conversation. Kendra Motes, you grew up in Somerville, Alabama, is that right? That's right. That's a part of Alabama that I don't know much about, or I think it's one of the places in Alabama I haven't been to. So what was it like for you growing up there? Yeah, it was um, it was a very, very small town. I, I joke with um, with friends now that I that the, the city block I live on in New York now has probably um, three to four times uh, more residents than uh, half half of my county, much less Somerville, where I grew up. Small rural community of around, I think, around 1,200 people, um, but not really contained in the same place. It's a bunch of farmers and people living on you know small family plots and that kind of thing. So your your job for, I guess, sort of the short form of it is corporate social responsibility, convincing companies that have resources to send some of that money to people or organizations that may have fewer resources. And I'm wondering how growing up, if you saw those sorts of things play out in any way. I definitely saw it firsthand. And, and I think one of the easy shorthand answers that comes to mind for me is, you know, is, is the principle of just to whom much is given, much is required. And, and the whole idea of being um, a good community partner, a good neighbor. And I think that as businesses and companies have gotten bigger and bigger, that, you know, that mindset has been um, probably quite literally more removed from people's minds, you know, when they don't actually know uh, the person who owns a company because they don't live down the street or they don't see them in the grocery store, it, it becomes much more of an abstract concept. But for me, I saw that um, my grandfather had a farming equipment, uh, small business and, and would, you know, everybody who would drive by would come in sometimes not even buy anything. They'd just get a can of Coke at the Coke machine and talk for two hours. But, you know, the next time they had a bake sale or the next time that their little league team was fundraising or something, you know, they would, they would come in and it was just, you did what you can for who you could, when you could. And I think that was something that was really prevalent for me early on in life. And, and my mom also then had a small business, she had an antique shop in my hometown. And so I, I kind of got two generations of firsthand experience, just seeing what it looked like to be responsive to a community because you were inherently part of it. You know, I don't live in a small, I don't live in a small town anymore. I live in, in New York city. And so I, I found that really challenging to think to myself, how can I create my own kind of little version of that and, and give back to the places that made me 
uh, able to do what I'm able to do now. And so that's why we, we really wanted corporate social responsibility, um, you know, to be part of, of my company and what we do. So I think it's, I think it's definitely something that smaller companies, small business owners probably know more instinctively and, and better than I would say big companies do. But, you know, we're trying to kind of flip that script a little bit. So I, I kind of gave a, a quick little definition of corporate social responsibility along the way. I realize it might not be quite the definition you would give. So for people who aren't familiar with the concept, could you sort of explain kind of what it is you do? Sure. So I, I founded and lead a social impact consultancy. And, and what that really means is I, I worked for the last nearly 15 years in the nonprofit sector. My work was really trying to convey the work that the organizations were doing. So I worked in communications and digital advocacy partnerships um, and, and strategic engagement, really trying to get the message of the services that the organizations pr provided, the work that they did to the people who could have benefited from that work or to the people who could help support it and keep it going. And so I think my understanding of social impact really comes from how you convey what you do, who you do it for, and what the ultimate outcome of that work is. One of the problems is that we have become really removed from from companies and from uh, businesses in, in, in a way that we don't shop locally anymore. We don't have, you know, an immediate connection to folks. And so this whole idea of, of social responsibility to me seems almost like a modern invention because we have removed it from our day-to-day -day lives in, in the sense that you used to be able to go directly into a store and speak to the manager and say that your, you know, your kid's sports team is fundraising for this, that, or the other thing. And you can still do that in small businesses or on main streets. And, and um, I think that's, that's amazing. But corporate social responsibility is really trying to bring that same kind of mindset to larger companies or to companies that are remote like mine that, you know, don't have a brick and mortar on a main street, but we really do want to pay what we're, you know, pay what we're, we're doing or what we're earning forward and give back to the community. I think having any kind of vision, any kind of strategy for that, whether you call that corporate social responsibility, responsible business initiative, social impact, you know, there goes by many different names, but I think the, the core philosophy really is just remembering that nobody does any of this alone. Uh, and we all, we, we all benefit from, from other parts of, um, you know, of our, of our built and lived environments that, that allow us to do it. So keeping that, that front and central. This is not the kind of job that it sounds like people dream about when they're little kids growing <laughs> up to do. You know, how did you find your way into the into doing this for a living? Yeah, I think I well, I wanted to be a creative as a kid. I really wanted to. I think my my initial dream or vision was that I would be a a magazine editor. And the publishing industry has uh, has since uh, become you know considerably less. Of a, of a force and a presence, I think, than it was in you know 1992. I I knew I wanted to do something creative. I knew I wanted to be able to elevate the power of storytelling, elevate the power of good work, and bring new ideas uh, and new conversations into um, into the world. And so I think you know I mentioned my my background in in nonprofit storytelling and communications really helped me emphasize that human-centered component. Uh, it wasn't about telling a brand story or a brand's voice, but it was about using individual people and their lived experiences and, and, you know, drawing parallels because I think we can, you know, I often tell clients that I work with that we, you, you have great data, you have great research. We can, we can tell that, you know, tell those stories and, and tell that data until we're blue in the face. But if we don't give people an actual human story to relate to, 
it's it's really you know you're really foregoing a lot of a lot of influence and impact because that's that's something that is is really powerful across the board people don't necessarily understand um you know data at a meta level but if you can if you can give them one ex- experience that they can take home and, and talk about over dinner you know you can you can really change minds and hearts and and policy over time so i think that's really important to make it a little more concrete what's an example of a project or a campaign you worked on something you're particularly proud of there have been so many, but I think one of the concrete examples recently is we had um, a foundation that we work with, the Henry Luce Foundation. They're based in New York, and they have a program, a, a scholarship program called the Luce Scholars Program, where they send a number of young professionals from straight out of college graduates to people in their early 30s on a paid fellowship program to Asia, uh, to a number of countries where they can um, you know, get vocational training, skills development, they have cultural projects where they can essentially embed themselves and learn from each other, not just kind of extracting, but also bringing things to the table. In the past, that program had only been invitation only. So they had, they had existing relationships with colleges and universities, and they would invite those universities to apply. Well, starting a couple of years ago, they said they really wanted to, to broaden that program and democratize it a little bit, but they didn't have an infrastructure internally to figure out how to target, how to campaign, how to launch ads and, and get them in front of the folks who maybe would have been, you know, immensely qualified and would have, would benefit from it, but just would never hear about it because they weren't part of the universities that in the past had been selected. And so that was something that was super exciting for me because, you know, I didn't go to an elite uh, college or university. I, I went to college uh, in, in Alabama where I grew up and um, you know, never really had many of these things on my radar when I was in, in my late teens, early twenties. And so you, you have all these life choices kind of by omission, not really by, by choice, but just things that you never hear of that pass you by. So that was a really cool example of a project where we could bring, you know, our team of state school graduates and, um, and, you know, Southeastern, uh, expatriates and be like, look, we're, we, we know a million of these places, you know, we, here are, 15 HBCUs we need to target. Um, here are, you know, state universities, here are university colleges and universities in the US territories that we should be thinking about, you know, targeting for this that that just never heard about it before. So there are a lot of things like that where it's not just communications and storytelling. Sometimes it's strategy and targeting and, and program development. But every every client that comes to us, I think, has a really powerful mission, vision, or value, whether they're a for-profit company, whether they're a foundation, whether they're a nonprofit, they, they have something good they're doing, but they're having some issue kind of connecting it to the people that they're trying to reach. And so we try to be those facilitators, those connectors, uh, and, and build those bridges to help make sure that those stories land with the audiences that they're trying to get them to. Are there companies that come to you at least partly because they might be trying to like rehab their reputation in some way. Like maybe they've done something and they're trying to prove that they're not bad guys for something that's happened in their past. That hasn't happened so far. We've, we've really only worked with, um, with nonprofit organizations, philanthropic foundations and some small businesses right now. Um, some, you know, food and beverage companies that are kind of upstarts or market challengers. So we haven't had that kind of situation. We have discussed what we, you know, what we would do if it, if, if they came our way. Fortunately, it hasn't been a problem we've had to really deal with. I mean, there are some lines in the sand. I think that you know any good kind of values-based company or organization should be willing to take. And for us, I think there there are definitely uh, companies that you know that we know that we wouldn't work with and probably would never come to us because of that. I think we try to make our values you know 
clear on on how we talk about our work but um i think most most organizations come to places like like us because they realize that they've got a good message they just need a, you know they need some help kind of making sure it resonates or lands with the people that 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 are their people is there anything about having grown up southern that makes your job easier or harder there's so many things this is this this is like a whole podcast episode in and of itself i think I think one of the one of the biggest regrets of my life, and it's going to sound like I'm being dramatic, but I'm not. When I was 15, I went away to a magnet school um, down in Mobile that had folks from the cities in Alabama. It was it was a state funded magnet school, but there were people from all over. And so, you know, because you had people from Birmingham, from Huntsville, from Montgomery, but whose parents grew up elsewhere, it was very very cosmopolitan and. I got made fun of for my accent because I I had a really, really strong rural uh, North Alabama country accent and North Alabama. So uh, where I grew up is in the Tennessee Valley, but my family culturally are very Appalachian. Every single word that I used was just really dripping with that. And I listened to tapes of NPR and um, CNN and worked to change my accent at, at 15 years old. Only got worse when I left when I left Alabama and moved to first to North Carolina, then then to New York, um, and spent some time in grad school in London. So I came back kind of linguistically confused. I, as a result, don't read a Southern when you meet me in a, a meeting or a conference room or whatever. And there have been so many situations, I think, especially since the 2016 election, where people would just make casual comments in meetings about people being stupid, people being backward, people being racist, people being redneck, and you know all of the things that we all know come with the territory anytime you leave the South and, and you are a Southerner having to kind of answer and apologize for everyone, you know, or, or anyone who's ever been wronged by anyone ever. That really just kind of shaped how I started thinking about reclaiming what it meant to be Southern. And I always thought, you know, my God, like what a, what a lost opportunity to kind of be a counter narrative to that, to be someone who's, who actually is, is in these conversations in these rooms and, and, and doing my best in, in the smallest way that I can to, to show that there are people who were born and raised in a, a different type of South with a different type of mentality. And so that's something that, you know, that I think really has shaped how I show up and talk about the work and how I wanted our funding strategy to be, you know, who I wanted most of the funds to go to my own learning process about where is all the money made versus, versus where is all the money being given, um, you know, when it comes to philanthropic funds and where is the need the greatest versus who's actually getting access to it, um, you know, all of those things. But I think one of the, on the lighter side of things, people always joke that I have just a, a million and a half idioms. Um, and I guess there aren't as many of those in the Northeast. Uh, I've, there've been so many times I've been, I've gotten a blank stare when I say a dog won't hunt or any, anything like that. But I do enjoy, I do enjoy the kind of uh, confusion that ensues sometimes when you can, when you can drop a good, a good Southern idiom. When we come back, Kendra Motes talks about coming out as gay as a young man and how things have changed since then. I would have been incredibly surprised if you told me at that age, and really even if you had told me at 22 or 24, right before it happened, that we would have been able, that I would have been able someday to get married. You know, that was, it, was, it wasn't the kind of thing that was just in the cultural dialogue of, of where I grew up. That and more I had on Southbound. Before we get back to this episode, I wanted to ask for a little help with something. If you enjoy Southbound, 
please give us a good rating and write us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast provider you have that allows such things. The more reviews and better ratings we get, the better chance there is that other listeners can find us. But to be honest, I'd just as soon you tell people about Southbound through good old word of mouth. If you could recommend it to just one person you know, somebody you might think would enjoy interesting conversations about the South, I'd be deeply grateful. If you have any thoughts about the show, guests to recommend, or anything that you think might make Southbound better, you can email me at ttomlinson at wfae.org. Thanks so much for giving us a little bit of your time. And now, back to my conversation with Kindred Motes. Are you able to sort of find your tribe in New York? Like I've heard, I'm from Georgia, and I've heard a lot of friends of mine who who lived in New York say, you know, the first thing they did when they got there is to figure out, like, where the Georgia people went to watch football on Saturdays or whatever. Have you been able to, like, figure out where the expats are and how to how to gather with them? Oh, for sure. Yeah, there's, I mean, I think the, the most common place for a lot of um, Alabamians in New York to meet up is, I believe that Ainsworth is where they watched Alabama games. That's a big thing. Um, you know, I have, I've been really fortunate to have uh, a lot of Southern friends in New York from that I met through the the nonprofit world and, and definitely love getting together with those, with those folks. Um, there's also a lot of, I think considerable number, especially in Brooklyn and in Harlem, there are a great number of really, really good Southern restaurants, um, Southern food. So I've, I've managed to find a couple that I really love. Um, the best to me by far that I've been to is in, in Williamsburg and, and it's called pies and thighs exactly what it would sound like very very good spot so there's you know there's definitely places to find your people and 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 connect with that crowd i think that it is a very small group by nature at least you know of folks that i know um and it may be you know to some degree that it's just kind of self-identifying right you only learn of them if they are seeking you out too but but i think that it's 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 really special to me it's odd given that it's the same country that we put such emphasis on it New York has always felt uh, very, very different to me from from really anywhere else that I can, you know, that I can identify in in the U.S. that I have lived as a Southerner for feeling particularly different. I guess just in every part of its character, so different from from everywhere that I grew up. You know, I, I mentioned that I I went to grad school in the U.K. I think one of the things that was super interesting to me, and I don't really know why, except for maybe just the longstanding kind of cultural ties between the two I always have felt more at home in London than I've ever felt in New York and I've always wondered why that is and I think that you know the south in many ways I think has the last remaining kind of cultural remnants of sort of pre-revolutionary America you know in terms of the influence of uh, the British influence and and the sort of consolidated influence I mean I remember growing up in in my my North Alabama school system every last name that that I ever learned was an English last name or a Scottish last name or an Irish last name. I mean, I didn't, I didn't see other groups of people, you know, linguistically represented until I moved away until I was living in you know New York or living in DC. And then you're like, Oh my gosh, there's so many different types of, of names, you know, from all over the country. You can see London in a Charleston, you can see it in a Savannah, you can see it in a Wilmington, you can see all of the kind of influences over time that, that made these places what they are. And I guess for that reason, you know, plus some of the like 
verbiage choices. I mean, I, I, there's only like a few places on earth that, um, like reckon in the South is apparently redneck, but in the Commonwealth, it's just chic. Like everybody <laughs> else can, can, can say it, right. <laughs> but linguistically there's a lot, a lot more in common, I think, um, between England and the South and there is between the South and, and the Northeast. It's so funny that you say that because some friends of mine who do a uh, college football podcast have a, a thing where they talk about occasionally online and it'll be like a story about some crazy sports fan or something like that. And it'll, and the, and the question will always be England or Alabama. And, and it's because <laughs> and they are so much alike in so many ways. I never really thought about it and still until they started talking about it in that way. Yeah. So, so speaking of Alabama, I know you, you spoke earlier about, defending the South or kind of sitting there quietly as people denigrated it. Obviously there's still a lot of, of troubling things that happened there. I think as we're talking just in the last couple of days, the Alabama Supreme court has said frozen embryos are people, uh, which means that uh, it's probably going to end or possibly end a lot of the IVF services in Alabama, at least for the time being until they get sorted out. And they're obviously always, some crazy thing that the legislature has done or some county government or something. First of all, how do you process that as somebody who's kind of seeing it from a distance? And then how do you persuade people to send money to a place that is having those kinds of trouble? It's the, I think the perennial kind of question and problem. I, I had a really, really interesting conversation um, about a year ago with, a former client of mine and and a guy that I really, really admire and respect named Flozell Daniels, who's the, um, he's the head of the Mary Reynolds Babcock Foundation in North Carolina. And something we talked about is that the South is always talked about like it is 50 years behind. And I think that the media, you know, examples from this week that you mentioned are a perfect case study of that. People have that completely backwards. I think the South is not 50 years behind. I think the South is 50 years ahead. And I think that that is a warning that people need to think about and listen to. And so when I have a conversation with funders, I say, look, things that are happening in, in these, you know, in these communities, in these states, in these localities where you have groups of people who are systematically disenfranchised, who are being written out of the conversation, who very much have a counter narrative and are counter organizing or are building power or building movements are fighting day in and day out but they are under-resourced, they are under-invested in, and you know they are increasingly marginalized. And if you are pulling out of those places, that is only going to compound that problem. And what is happening in those states later will come to you. It's being used, you know, it's happening there as a sort of laboratory for all things awful. But if you leave that to stew in its own juices, it's only going to come for you later. And I think we've seen that, you know, with... Um, with really a bunch of different policies. I mean, I could list, you know, a ton, but even just thinking about you know, things that the, the United States Supreme Court has ruled on in the last three years that 10 years ago were part of a, you know, policy laboratory in North Carolina or Texas or Tennessee or Alabama. If you leave these things as a them problem and not an us problem, they eventually always become an us problem. You know, cancer doesn't stay in one cell and say, I'm happy here. Thanks for the, you know, thanks for the crumb. It eventually comes for the whole body. And so I think that that's something that, you know, funders really ignore at their own peril. We can't constantly denigrate an entire place, strip it of its resources, and then wonder why it's not getting better. That's not how that works. We can't, we can't expect that to be uh, the pathway to change. And 
And I realized, you know, a long time ago, I think I felt really guilty that I was part of the problem, that I was yet another example of, you know, someone who was nurtured by a place, raised in it, educated by it and invested in. And then the first chance I got, I left, you know, it wasn't because I was like, I'm out of here, but it was, you know, it was during the recession in the mid aughts and there were only so many jobs and so many types of fields and we went where we could, you know, it's why so many people I know right now who are between 30 and, and 40, you know, have kind of splintered disparate friend groups all around the country or the world. And we live where we can next to each other and we're help raising each other's babies because our moms and grandmas are, you know, 400 miles away sometimes. And so I wanted to do what I could to try and reverse that, even if I couldn't physically be there right now by redirecting resources. And, you know, if that means that I have to kind of be, um, a reverse carpetbagger or something sort of stealing from the North to pay the South. And so be it like, that's, that's, uh, you know, I think that would make for a welcome change. You mentioned your husband earlier on, and I know that your group does a lot of work with LGBTQ issues. And that made me wonder, did you come out when you were still living in Alabama? I did. I, I came out when I was, I think 16. Yeah. So it's been um, over half my life ago now, which is kind of crazy to think about. So, so what was that like? complicated as you can probably imagine it was um it was 2006 and so i guess i would have i would have been incredibly surprised if you told me at that age and really even if you had told me at 22 or 24 right before it happened that we would have been able that i would have been able someday to get married um you know that was it was it wasn't the kind of thing that was just in the cultural dialogue of of where i grew up I grew up in a, I grew up in a religious home. Um, we grew up, I grew up Southern Baptist. And so that was very, um, very much not something that, you know, I think my family thought was in the cards for me and we have been on our own journey about it. I think it's something that I think I always say when I, when I talk about this with friends, nothing has given me the sort of perspective and grace for anyone, but especially for parent, for my parents or for any parents as getting as old as they were when they had me and then older and realizing that I don't have anything figured out. You know, I don't know how, I don't know what it looks like to keep anything alive. I mean, I can barely keep houseplants alive. There is no guidebook and people are the products of, of their age, their era, their, you know, their education, their community, their resources. And we're all learning as we go. And I saw really, this is not meant to redirect the question, but I, I think it's just like a, I think it's a really interesting insight watched a movie recently called all of us strangers um which is an independent film incredible if you haven't seen it i'd highly recommend it but in the film without giving too much away the lead character has this conversation with his two parents he's an adult he's older than they are but they are his parents when he was a child because they um they're no longer living and i thought it was such a beautiful representation because he is gay and he's talking to his parents about um, his life and his wife asks, you know, well, do you have a girlfriend? And he says, you know, no. And she, you know, pokes and prods. And eventually he says that he's gay and, you know, she died in the mid eighties. And so her questioning was kind of trapped in amber of, of what a parent would be asking in 1985, 1986, if you were telling them that you were gay. And I just thought that it was, I found it incredibly moving because it, it shows, I mean, I was thinking about, you know, my own family and other people's families. And I was talking about it with Raul and my husband. And we were like, yeah, like, of course, people have changed their their mindsets, their mentalities, their approaches, because the people that we're seeing in this film are the same age that our, our parents were in the mid 80s. And the only difference is that some people are given the benefit of time, grace and opportunity and all the other things to kind of 
you know, work their way through it. And so I think I've, I've come on, on my own journey too, in terms of what I am comfortable expecting of people and what I'm willing to meet them halfway on. And, you know, some of those things are hard and fast. Some of them aren't. I do think the most important thing is I always wanted people who held me when I was a baby, who were around when I was walking my first steps or who knew me at church growing up to be able to look at me and say, you know, we, we know who you are. We, we love you. We care about you. You don't have to, I don't know. I don't, I don't think I need anything else from me right now. You know, maybe I did when I was 16, maybe I did when I was 22, you know, I don't at 33, I just need you to be decent. My relationship with my parents has, has really come a long way. And, uh, you know, I think one of the happiest moments of my recent memories is over the holidays, we were able to go home, both of us and Raul got to meet all my living grandparents, my aunts and uncles, my cousins. I think visibility is a really important part of relationship building. I think people, when people can look at someone and see that they're a person, not some, you know, mythologized monster that, that really can change things. Yeah. It does seem like the, the key is just getting to know somebody, right? Like exactly. everybody can, it's, it's much easier to be against a concept than it is against an actual person. What's like the most Alabama thing about New York? And maybe what's the most New York thing about Alabama? <laughs> oh, man. Um, let me think about this for a second. <laughs> I think maybe one of the most Alabama things about New York is how absolutely little it cares what you think about it. It's very Alabama to militaristically not give a, you know, insert any number of, uh, of expletives and, and uh, f- colorful words here, um, what you think about, about them, but, you know, they're going to do their own thing no matter what. And, um, and that includes right now the, the biggest, uh, one of the biggest pain points of my life. We live at uh, uh, just above the Queensboro Bridge. And so we're hearing constantly honking it like, every hour of the day. Um, so I, you know, I, I feel very strongly now there should be a policy for only allowing a certain uh, number of honks per hour for cars because they're to prevent. Are they not supposed to be honking or is it just the cabs? It's just constant honking because the roads are always clogged because everyone runs the lights. So people are just <laughs> constantly, and I'm like, it's to prevent an accident, not to express frustration. We need, <laughs> we need a policy mandate to limit how many honks you can have in an hour. But I think one of the, um, one of the most New York things about Alabama. Let's see. Well, I think to be honest, I think both New York state and Alabama both have incredibly chaotic and, um, very good old boy network political systems. So I think that in some ways what people think of as the smoke filled rooms of, of like Southern politics or the, you know, Robert Penwar and all the King's men kind of thing, I think is, is really, uh, strong held in, in places like New York state, you know, with, with, uh, folks like that who are, are very much, I think still, um, running a lot of things up here. But I think one of the, one of the biggest, um, factors there is, is probably that the political audience is, um, not as homogenous as you would think. I think that's something that I, I, I'm constantly trying to beat home with, uh, with how people think about politics in the South as well. There are just as many people who are trying to do bad things as trying to do good things. And it's just sometimes they have a bigger platform or a bigger microphone to go back to one of the things that you were just saying about, you know, talking to people. I do think that's 
what my work really is, you know, whether it's behind the scenes or whether it's to other people, you know, in a, in a public facing setting, one of the, the worst things for society that unfortunately was also very good for my career was, you know, the moving from analog to digital and everybody getting behind a screen. And, you know, I think we lose our humanity in that process. I think there's a lot of, um, a lot lost there when we can't actually just sit across from somebody and have a cup of coffee and respectfully engage in a dialogue. And it doesn't mean we're going to agree. It doesn't mean we're going to like each other afterwards. We don't have to be best friends, but I'm going to understand something about you from that process. And you're going to understand something about me. That's going to flash in our minds the next time somebody talks about someone from Alabama or a gay person or somebody from Georgia it's our own little impact that we can leave. And if we don't have those conversations, we never have those moments of discovery or spontaneity. And so I think that's something that makes me so excited to be able to have conversations like this, because it's how, in some small way, it's how change happens. It doesn't always happen, you know, in grand gestures. Sometimes it's just in little, little conversations. In some ways, Kindred Motes has built his career to face the question all progressive Southerners have to deal with at some point. Why do you still love that place? I mean, it's got to be something more than hush puppies and magnolias. I think it's something about not giving up. Not in the Confederate reenactor sense, in the sense of trying to heal a body that has spent its whole existence fighting disease. There are two ways to heal. One is to beat down the bad as hard as you can. The other way is to uplift the good until that becomes the strong part. There are people all over the South doing that, as well as people like Kindred Motes chipping in from far-flung places. He's right, you know, about the South being 50 years ahead of everybody else in all the wrong ways. And we're now seeing so much of the country acting like the worst of us. The only thing to do, not just for the South's present, but for the country's future, is to show them what the best of us can do. Southbound is a production of WFAE in Charlotte. Our editors are Lisa Worf and Jen Lang. Our main theme music comes from Joshua Lee Turner. You can listen to this and other episodes of Southbound on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the NPR One app, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Subscribe for free to get each new episode sent to you when it's ready. You can also find Southbound at our website. Just go to wfae.org slash podcast slash Southbound. See y'all next time. Thanks for listening. Oh. And one more thing. There's there's a really interesting article in The Atlantic that came out a few years ago that I got a lot of mileage out of, which was um, them writing incredulously about how North, Northern biscuits weren't as good as Southern ones and, and doing a deep dive investigation as to why. And it turned out that their answer anyway was the like triple milled white lily flower uh, allows for higher rise. I think there's something to do with the air, the elevation and, and the oven consistency too. But um Anyway, that's that's definitely something that uh, that I have I found uh, New York City biscuits um, writ large to be somewhat of a choking hazard. So I can't say I rec- recommend it. <laughs>